Welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. Each week, we hear real-time stories from athletes and CEOs on how to maximize performance through an endurance mindset. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. I'm super excited for our guest today. He is a decade of training and almost a decade of coaching, studying movement and learning movement. He underwent elective amputation after nine years, a nine-year fight with complex regional pain syndrome. He's the author of the ebook, The First Step Running Program, the owner of Schaefer Adaptive Methods. Please welcome Sam Schaefer. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I, um, I'm grateful for every one of these opportunities. It's just uh, a wild place to think that my life is here when I consider what it was four years ago. Yeah, there's a lot to dig into there. Let's jump into my favorite question first, Sam. How has your endurance mindset impacted your life unexpectedly? Um, so for me, like endurance is very much a, a living metaphor for dealing with adversity. You're not always going to feel good. Some days are going to feel better. Some days are going to feel great. And some days you're just absolutely not going to have it. The common theme is you still got to show up. It's a step-by-step, day-by-day, and you just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And endurance isn't something I got from a running, from a run. It's something, it's a byproduct of continuing to run, continuing to show up, continuing. And for everything that I've already gone through, endurance, now that I have the opportunity to actually train my endurance, it's, a, um, it's an opportunity to keep that blade sharp because yeah, the next thing's coming. It always has come in. It's a great point. Um, you mentioned coaching. How do you use yes. your endurance mindset in a coaching setting? Um, it's, well, you get a lot of time to think on runs and stuff like that. And you start learning, like, I'm a big language guy. So it's really kind of helped me communicate even better. I think most about anyone that's coached for a long time knows that the hardest thing to do with an athlete is to get them to understand what you're looking for to do it right is going to take a while. There's going to be a lot of little steps and continuing to dive in has continued to develop my language and ability to communicate this to athletes when they're newer. And, you know, part of the reason why they get a coach, like all this information's out there. Like, like the, I don't have any, I have very little that you can't just go find, but they are not as like, this is not their passion. It's not their field of study. It is mine. So like for me, it's about getting that language to communicate to somebody who this isn't. And so as I've continued to do that, I have my ability to communicate like, oh, you want to, whether or not it's a big deadlift strength number, or it is an endurance um, goal, it's going to take a while. And my ability to connect those dots has only gotten stronger. That's awesome. Could you give us an example of, of some, like, let's say it's a new athlete coming to work with you. Walk us through a scenario of your communication tactics, what they're trying to accomplish. Give us a little bit more meat there. All right. Um, so let's, let's uh, get, give me a goal that they might be working towards. Uh, let's, just say, let's, just, let's just, okay. So, so you want to run a marathon. Okay. So you obviously, obviously they already now know that whole 26.2 number that there's the mythology to it all. And there's that big grand excitement. So the first thing I asked them, I'll talk to them about like, so do you want to just simply get through these miles or are you trying to have an experience? They're trying to have an experience. Every athlete, whether they like, 
And even if it's a lifting number, like they think that 26.2 miles represents an experience that they want to have a feeling that they want to feel. So we start there. So now, okay, ah, that's what we're building to. I was like, do you really want to slog it in and basically have a death march the last few miles? Is that, is that, is that worth it? For most people, it's a no. For me, no. I'm like, I will eventually run a marathon. I know that. I am not okay with limping it in. Like, I don't want to limp in to the finish line. So from there, we start to be like, okay, so here's what we get. Here's what happens. And here, and so they start to understand, like, here's the breakdown that's going to happen. And you're going to start to feel these things. So as we start to train, I can now connect everything to that experience they're seeking. And that's how you can get somebody to start thinking about their breathing early on so that their, so that their stride and all that gets developed with that breathing emphasis. We can start working on technique. They can understand why not every run is done at a maximal pace. In fact, most of them are not, you know, I, I am a big fan of that 80, 20 rule. I think it's, I think there's a reason why so many people ascribe to the 80, 20 with endurance that 80% of your run is done very low, low speed, um, and low velocity. And so like, it becomes easier to communicate, like, what are we doing? We're building this endurance because skill number one, you have to be able to move for 26 miles. Nothing else matters from that experience until we can simply move 26 miles. It doesn't matter if you're running a 12 minute mile, an 18 minute mile, or a six minute mile. You have to be able to move for 26.2. That is the baseline prerequisite to run a marathon. And so it becomes easier. Like these are boring things. Like, like the reality is, but when they're tied to this like experience that they're trying to feel this version of themselves, they're trying to be now we're cooking. And I, I have found much more success getting a newer athlete to be like, okay, I'm willing to go down this path and learn some stuff. That's a fantastic way of looking at training. Um, and I've never thought of, this is the first time I've ever had this conversation around the experience. I'm curious, Sam, how did you discover this angle to coaching, to training, to performance? Um, perspective is everything. And I now have gotten to live multiple athletes' lives. So I was, so I started training in general at nine, 19, yeah, 19 uh, years old. I'm 33. And healthy kid. I left college because it was boring. I didn't feel like it was taking me anywhere. Like I didn't realize this at the time, but I started to realize that the experience I was going to get out of life from that college degree was not interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I ended up joining the military and I signed up for a special operations job. Perspective number one is an athlete. Well, I mean, I played high school sports and stuff like that. And I'd always kind of wanted to go pro in something. Um, being 4'11", 95 pounds day one of high school doesn't really give you a lot of options. So, um, not, not, not a genetic freak over here. And, um, so like there's that. So there was the healthy guy, the hard charger. I'm here to like, I, I need, I need to go, go, go. I'm trying to be this, you know, special operations. Then I got hurt. Um, I got the ner nerve condition. I then spent a few years like definitely living in denial. Still trying to like, still working very hard, but a lot of it was to try and hide it. So I've, I've lived that life as well. Um, things deteriorated and I had to get more real about it and I had, and then I had to start shifting. So now I've been an athlete that had to shift and pivot, um, from the thing that I loved first. 
And then that deterioration continued to happen. And now I'm a, now I'm a guy who loves to train. I'm walking around on a forearm crutch because the cane is no longer enough help. And I am having to, again, continue to learn and learn and learn. Um, I can, my perspective keeps changing and then I end up being, and then I finally get out of pain after nine years. And now I've got this new, now I've got a new lease on life. So again, so I've lived all these things and I've started to realize like you have to connect to the perspective. And then I sat there and I was like, cause part of my, part of what I felt was like, uh, electing for amputation was like, what is the life experience I'm going for here? Like, what, what, what do I want out of life? And this isn't it. Like the, so it wasn't scary for me to like choose to take my leg off because it gave me, it was the only thing left that gave me an opportunity for the life that I was chasing. Mm -hmm. So as I started to realize this, I started to apply this now, like, you know, and just like, again, also reps, just so many reps. I've been coaching for over a decade. I've coached, I've coached thousands of people at this point. I've been in a room eye to eye with so, with, you know, a thousand different people trying to learn how to just simply do a squat correct. So their back doesn't hurt. And very few of them want to squat 600 pounds. Almost all of them want to be more comfortable when they go home. They want to be more comfortable in their life. They want to be able to say yes to more things with their kids. It's, it's what, whatever that, you know, that, that North star is for them and that guiding light. And so like, I started realizing like, I am failing my client if I'm not doing, if I'm not factoring in their perspective and the experience that they're looking for out of life the same way I had to, because I had to fight for my amputation. Uh, the VA was not useful. They were not helpful. And, uh, they told me no at first because they didn't like it. And it was that simple. Well, we don't like this. So we're not, so we're going to fight you on it. That's unfortunate for sure. Um, walk us through, you said when you made the decision to do the elective amputation, that it was kind of the best way forward for you. And so it really wasn't that difficult of a decision, but walking up to it, the years working up to that, talk to us about the emotions of when you started thinking about, Hey, I need to take this leg off so I can have a better life. What was the emotional cycle you went through leading up to the decision? Um, I mean, honestly, I had gone through most of the worst part. Um, I'll, I'll tell people like amputation, life as an amputee is very hard. I have the unique perspective that it's only the second hardest thing I've ever done. The, the pain I dealt with before was even harder than what I'm dealing with now. Though, so, um, I'm good. You won't hear me complain. I asked to be here. Um, like, uh, so yeah. So, I mean, honestly, like it was just, you know, if you can imagine yourself at 20 or 21, like hard charger, again, I am, I'm in this, I'm in a pipeline for the military with uh, special operations, uh, combat control in the air force. I am by all measures doing well. Like I, I am, I believe I'm on a trajectory that I will be one of the people that that completes the course that will become an operator that will move forward with this. And I fall on a run. I clip a curb on a run, wreck my ankle, fracture a bone, and then develop this nerve condition that the chances for, I now know were 0.000026%. That was the chance of me getting that uh, condition at the time. This is also the only condition that rates higher than natural childbirth on the pain chart. So that right there brought, took me through the ringer. 
Um, I failed every treatment. I was treatment resistant. Um, I wasn't open to opiates for the rest of my life. I knew how that went. Um, so there wasn't a lot for me to do other than just do my best. And then that became my filter. I, I didn't think, I didn't make decisions on, do I want to do X? I thought, do I want to be my best? And I voted for that as many times as I could. And when things got so bad that I'm on a cane, um, someone sees me at uh, the Arnold Sports Festival in Columbus, Ohio. And she, she stops me um, and she's like, hey, you know, you're like, no, no offense, you're a little young for somebody I would normally see using a cane. Do you mind if I ask what happened? You know, she's like, she's like, she didn't understand. Like, she thought she understood and she, she, her guess was right. She's like, it's weird that you're in a cane. You appear to be in shape. Like, you, like you're not overweight. You're, you're lean, you're muscular. What's, you know, come to find out she was an amputee that had an amputation as a result of complex regional pain syndrome. Wild, wild, like collisions of, you know, a wild synchronicity. You know, you, I was in the right place at the right time. You said it was um, and, point and zero, zero, zero. Four zeros. Four zeros. Four zeros, then two and a six. <laughs> so we are to the sixth decimal point. Uh, that, that was the likelihood of that occurring. So I went from crushing it to being crushed. I didn't understand it. And, you know, so like I said, so there was the big emotional ringer that I went through for those, you know, the next nine years. And I'm, I'm seven, almost eight years into this is whenever this uh, meeting occurred. And so I live about six hours from Columbus, Ohio. My wife and I had driven to that, to the expo and on the drive back, we had sorted it all out that like, Hey, are you okay? If this is what it comes to, I was like, because if that's what I need to do. That's okay to me. Um, if I'm headed for a wheel, like I was like, we know where this is going. It's not getting better. I have worked how hard and have never gotten better. I've only slowed down the deterioration, but I've never stopped it. And so that was really where like the big cycles. And I just got really good at that filter of, does this make me my best? And then things got dark enough where I had to, I didn't answer. Do I want an amputation? Like, do I want to be my best? All right, then you need to call it get this consult going for an amputation. It was that, to me, it was that simple. Um, one was a life that I could, I could bear to live and the other one I couldn't. Um, so then, the, then that became another fight with, like you said, the VA was not in my corner. Um, they, they, they've never, they've not been in my corner outside of the amputee clinic that I work with incredible people. Um, the rest of the VA has not been in my corner the entire time. Um, I've got a confusing pain condition and they don't want to do that. They didn't want to do that work. Um, they just wanted to give me opiates. And I was like, well, I don't want to be a junkie. Um, they're like, so must not be, they just were like, oh, so you're fine. And that, that was that, that was that, that was the cycle of care I, I've received. And so in terms of like, yeah, just making that decision, it, I, I had, I was so low and so stripped of every ounce of who I thought that I was, who I wanted to be. And like, I was like, I, I know how hard I'm working. Like I, I knew that I wasn't kidding myself with how hard I was training. Like I, like I've got a 500 pound back squat and I walked in on a cane that day. I walked in on a cane because when my feet were together, I could at least for the most part, usually do okay. The second I started to start walking, things would deteriorate. Um, you know, some days I had, 500 steps before the day was over. 
you know, like I lived that life. So once you start, once that's your reality, amputation just doesn't really like, okay, so that's just the next thing. And like, and there was a chance it wouldn't work because of the nerve condition, because it was a nerve condition and the way that that condition can work, it can spread. But like, you might not ever get to put on a prosthetic. You may end up in a wheelchair. I was like, where do you think I'm headed? I'm on a forearm. I'm, I'm 29 on a forearm crutch. Where do you think this is going? And I just, I, the time was now. Um, I knew that I was like, I'm not gonna, I don't think I have the push to get stronger. I think this is as strong as I'm going to be as healthy as I can be. Let's go. This gives me more time to work on it. So educate us a little bit about the condition you said it, it started with an ankle ankle injury at this extremely low probability. Does it then sort of work its way up the leg over time to your point um, about it can, for some people, it could spread to another limb. Um, I did not have that. So everybody gets it a little different. Like I said, so if you let's take, if you take a look at the name analytically, you start to realize like, oh, you guys don't really know what's going on here. Complex regional pain syndrome. What does that mean? Nothing. Like <laughs> that title means nothing. Right. Um, so everybody gets it a little bit different. Um, so like some people, like they get really bad spikes in pain. They get really, they're really temperature sensitive. Some people are really touch sensitive. They they can't wear certain socks. They can't have certain materials for sheets because it'll, it hurts too bad. Um, for me, the pain just literally never stopped. I was literally constantly on the pain chart until my, until I woke up for my amputation. Um, I was constantly there and like, it just, I didn't sleep for nine years. So like everybody, so yeah, so I wish I could give a good explanation of it because I know it would be really helpful if somebody could really explain it well, because it would help a lot of people. The reality is it is for just about everybody, it's very intense and it's getting in the way of a lot of things. Like you said, like I didn't sleep. It was hard to focus, couldn't express myself. And then this just snowballs for years and years and years. Um, so like you said, so for me, like I had a lot of pain. Like it would move around my leg. It, it's all stayed below my knee, fortunately. And, but like, so like, I would just get a lot of really intense pain. Like those last couple of years, I would regularly weekly, if not daily, be at eight or above, spend time at an eight or more on the pain chart. And like, and there was nothing I could do. I couldn't like go to the hospital. I know like 10 out of 10 means you need to go to the, like you need to go to the hospital. You feel like you're going to die, but there's nothing they were going to do for me. So what do you do at that point? You know, the, the condition unfortunately also has the moniker of the suicide disease because that is how most of these cases are resolved. Well, so, and I was like, go ahead. I was like, I'm so grateful it didn't take that path for you. Um, Sam, I'd love to chat about how you now use those experiences in your day-to-day -day life today. Yeah. Um, like I said, perspective is an amazing thing. I, I truly understand. Like I have felt how much worse things can be. Um, but the other thing that came from that is because, so there is an element of what tends to happen when people get this condition is they try to disassociate from the pain. They try to not experience it. They try to get out of it and get, you know, get rid of it. And there came a point where I re where once I got past like the denial phase of how much of how bad things were, I realized like if I ever get out of pain, what's going to happen? 
I have to be ready for that. Like for me, I spent that whole time preparing. What if it works? What if I figure it out? What if I crack this code? I just have to stay in the game. So I'd built all these tools, you know, whether it's stress management, you know, there's like the stress management side of it. There's also just simply the problem solving side of it. You know, I, I learned how to learn things. I learned how to change my mind. I learned how to pivot and adjust and how I, how I viewed everything. And these, it's all these like little tools that I accumulated through that because I chose to stay present with the pain. You know, I used to have this thing that I would tell me when it get really bad, I would tell myself, it's like, you're not in pain, you're experiencing pain and experiences will end. And like, I, I, I had to gas myself up, man. <laughs> like, like, well, whether or not that's total, like for some people, I'm sure they're going to hear that. Right. What is he talking about? <laughs> it makes no sense. But like at a certain point, like you got to get, like I, I was, it was rough, man. Like it was, and I, I really had to work very hard to, again, to accumulate all these tools. You know, this is how I got into, you know, cold immersion and breath work and meditation. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I realized really early on, like alcohol is not going to help. In fact, it's going to make things worse. So I really didn't. So I, it made it real easy. You know, a lot of people struggle to not drink, to not drink because how social it is. I was like, I didn't care. Like I now have that going for me. So there's a lot of like these sorts of tools that I've accumulated through just do it, choosing to deal with what I had to deal with the way that I did. And I, and what I, and it's kind of like, um, it felt very Sisyphus in the moment. Well, what happens, what would happen to Sisyphus if he kept driving the way he did and somebody actually removed that rock and that rock was gone? How far forward can that guy, can that monster go? And that's what I've done is I, I, um, I love the saying, uh, chop wood, carry water. Familiar with that? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm very big on the chop wood, carry water thing. It's something that just connected to my, to my soul. Um, I literally have it tattooed on my fingers. Um, I literally have a chop wood, carry wood, uh, chop, chop wood, carry water, um, tattoo on, on my fingers and like. So for anyone that isn't familiar with that one, uh, the explanation that I like is, um, you know, a, a monk's path to enlightenment or goal of enlightenment. It's like, what does a monk do before, before enlightenment, they chop wood, carry water and chop wood, carry water to me is a, is a representative of all the little things, the basics, the fundamentals, um, to, you know, the basic things to take care of themselves. And then what does a monk do after enlightenment chops wood and carry water? You, you don't stop doing those things that got you there. So I haven't stopped at doing the things that got me here. I just have to go find different things now. Sure. Sure. Um, you're talking about tools and routines, habits. It sounds like, do you have a daily routine, daily habit that you, well, I'll, I'll leave a question there. Do you, have a routine or a daily habit that kind of incorporates yeah. these tools? Yeah, I'm very, um, I love a good routine. Um, I, I, I do look for as much variation as I, as I enjoy and I like changing things up. I also like my baseline to be, to, to set the table. So I am very big on a nighttime and a morning routine. Um, I know a lot of people espouse, you know, the, the morning routine thing and they get really extreme and intense about it. But to me, I think, I do think that everyone needs a good morning routine, but I don't think it's this like seven part series that everybody thinks that that means to me, 
It's simply waking up and doing something to start your day that's voting for your best self. For some people, it's simply waking up and having a cup of coffee and quiet. Other people, it's breath work, a walk, yoga, journal, read 10 pit, you know, people, you know, if you've got that, you know, why hammer in for it? Um, we all, everybody wishes they had that time in the morning. Good for them. So yeah. So like my nighttime routine, um, is to me, it's the same thing. Like if you want a morning routine, you need a nighttime routine because you need to go, you need to sleep. Um, so I struggle with sleep so bad with my pain condition. I, I still do. And it's repairing. I, 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 can, I feel like it's repairing at some level. I just don't all the way know, um, yet. And so like for sleep, you know, I, I do have my routine, you know, by, by eight o'clock, my wife and I are transitioning towards bed. I, I try to be in bed by nine 30. I'm definitely a, you know, we're recording for those of you that don't know, we're recording this at seven 30 AM. I'm not mean. And, um, so I'm an early, I'm an early bed at bedtime. And so like, it's, it's a nighttime routine. It's, you know, we watch certain shows, you know, I, I'm done eating. I drink this. I, you know, I, I will get, make sure like, you know, so I take a sleep supplement. I get the same flavor every time because I want that flavor to like trigger me to think like, oh, that warm apple cinnamon drink means we're going to bed. So we need to start down regulating in the morning. Um, to me, like, I, I just, I set the ship, right. I, I write the ship when I wake up, I, I do, I wake up, I go to my office, I set up my mat and I do a 10 minute breath work routine. I do a little bit of stretching. I've got a little bit of a gratitude practice that I do. And then I, my wife and I go eat breakfast, or if we've got stuff going on, we, we, we get going for the day for whatever it is. Um, I have them in levels and phases. So like no matter what I do my breath work, I don't always have time for the other stuff. And if I do, and I've got time and I have the ability to take my time, I do, and I do other stuff, but like my minimum is I always do my 10 minutes of breath work. I always do that. Um, you know, so that's how I kind of view that one is like, I have my ideal, but I have my, but I've also defined all my minimums with these practices. So. Yeah. So other than that, it's just like your basics. It's making sure I'm moving around. I'm, I'm getting walks in. I'm, I'm, you know, getting the steps in, you know, my, my food, I'm pretty consistent. I'm very consistent on my food. Um, I, I know what I'm eating, even when I'm not tracking, I could pretty well go pop on an app and track it all real quick and tell you exactly what I've been eating for the last three weeks. So the, your breath work, I'm really fascinated by that. Um, is that guided? Like, do you go into an app that walks you through your breath work or have you, this is from training and you just know what your routine is? Educate us a little bit on, on breath work. Okay. Um, so I'll start with what I'll do and I'll get into more, a more broad sense. So um, I, do a, I do a guided in the morning. I like the, I, I just like it. Um, I know some people that they simply just set a 10 minute timer and they just breathe deeply. And then when that timer vibrates, they know it's time to move on. Um, I do a guided one um, through an app called XPT. And these guys, um, XPT, if you've ever seen people doing some of like the more crazy, like underwater training, um, those XPTs, those guys are big pioneers for this. Um, a very, very intelligent group of people. Um, I, from their approach is intelligent. What they're figuring out is really smart. And so like, so I do, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Laird Hamilton. Does that name sound familiar? No. He's a surfer. He was kind of one, he was an early pioneer of a lot of like the big wave surfing. 
And this guy is still doing it and still pushing the envelope. Uh, I don't even know how old the guy is at this point, but um, definitely older than you suppose think for somebody that's allowed to do this. He take care of himself very well. And so um, he was a part of founding this XPT group. And so I, I run their morning breath work. But like, I, I've, I've explored a lot of things, you know, sometimes it's as simple as like, I'm in the car and I'm like, okay, everyone. Okay. So everyone's going to drive like a moron today. So I'm going to do a little bit of box breathing. So I don't get caught up in this because they don't get a vote in my emotions. So box breathing is a really simple, I, I, this is where I think everyone should start. So box breathing represents all four corners of the breath, inhale, hold, exhale, hold at the bottom of your breath. And so the box breathing means that they're all the same. So like very simply, it could be five second inhale, hold that breath for five seconds, exhale for five seconds, and then you hold with no air for five seconds and you just continue to repeat that for however long. So where breathwork came into play for me and for the rest of the population, why I think they should do breathwork and have some amount of breath practice, even if it's just doing box breathing in the car uh, on their commutes, is that it is a re it's how we regulate our nervous system state. It, it, it is, it is our keys to the car. So when I was in massive pain and I'm and it's now spiking my stress levels, cortisol is through the roof and I'm dealing with all this extra, that's what I could, that's the only thing I could do that to bring down some of it. It didn't bring down my pain, but it has been proven that slow exhales lower your perception of pain. And that's where the, I'm in pain. I'm not in pain. I'm experiencing pain came into play. I would kind of get that mantra as I exhaled. It would slow down my exhale. And I would, so then I would start getting into longer and that's where the, and then cold immersion is just an extrapolation of that. It's a challenge to your breath. Like that's where the magic happens. And like the people that get into the ice water stuff, like I do that almost every day and it's a breath practice. It challenges your stress response. Your stress response goes up. I keep that blade sharp by doing that and then doing breathing. I will do a 10 second triangle breath. So I don't hold it at the bottom, but I'll hold it at the top. So I'll inhale for 10 seconds. I work myself to where I can inhale for 10 seconds, hold it for 10 seconds and exhale for 10 seconds. That didn't start like that. It was five seconds to start when I first started. And I first started trying to do the triangle thing in the, in the ice water. And there's a lot of ways to get it done, but like, so there, there's ways to regulate down and up. It's the way that you take control of your, your, your emotional state in a lot of sense. Um, that's why like, you know, anxiety, what do they do? You know, what was the old thing you see them like breathe into a bag? Mm -hmm. It would slow that it would slow their breathing rate down. And when you slow the breathing rate down, that allows you to, again, down regulate. Like, so like that, like, so again, it's in my mind, it's just flat out. It's control. It gives you control over, um, over what's going on and over how you, how you're not over what's going on. It gives you control over how you respond and it gives you the space to be responsive instead of reactive. That's fantastic. Um, and I'm, you know, personally I do box breathing and I feel like I'm just at the tip of the iceberg of what the potential could be. So I needed to spend a lot more time digging have you ever into that have you yeah have you played with any other tempos like more aggressive ones like faster no, ones slower i haven't gotcha so i mean honestly you're gonna get so much out of box breathing just continue to get like make the box bigger um mm. but, but yes yeah, so like i even do um i i do an upregulating focus 
am doing breath work for my, so I coach fighters as well. And so before fight night, before they're getting, the first thing they do in their warm up, their hands are taped. They've got, they've been checked and all that stuff. We, I do a breath work session with them. It's about five minutes and we are locked and loaded when that's done. You, you, you can, um, be more present. You can be more focused. Like you can get super dialed in with this, with uh, certain like patterns. And, um, once you start to realize that you have that kind of control, a lot of things start to seem a lot more possible. Mm. You know, I've got a, a mastermind group that I meet with once a month, uh, fellow business owners, and the meetings that I find are the most productive are the ones that we've spent two to three minutes doing some sort of breathing exercise. It just, it brings the group together and it, you know, it settles your anxiety. I love it. Yeah. And you're all this, and you're all the same. And now you've all collectively chosen to get on the same literally wavelength. You know, as I know how woo woo that sounds. Um, but you know what? I've learned I'll get as woo woo as I need to to survive. Um, and, but like uh, Phil Jackson, that was his thing one team, one breath. And they did breath work back in the 90s. Michael Jordan's team, they did team breath work. Lakers, Kobe, Shaq, they did te- they like. Phil was Phil Jackson was a was a really early adopter of that stuff with athletics, and that was um, I believe that was a chapter in his book Eleven Rings, One Team, One Breath. Hmm. That's something to something to read. So, Tim, you mentioned coaching. Tell us, talk to us about your coaching business and and who you work with. Those types of things. All right. Um. So yeah. So I so I got introduced to like real training was you know early days of CrossFit actually, uh, literally fe- like early February of 2010. Uh, I was introduced to CrossFit. There were no CrossFit shoes. Um, eight CrossFit HQ was done on a WordPress site. The workout got released at 7 p.m. And if it was 7.02 and it hadn't been, everybody was texting each other, you know, that way back then. Um, so I, I, I watched CrossFit start to get figured out. I think it's still got a lot of way. I still think it's got a ways to go. Um, but like I've, I've watched like CrossFit start to get figured out. But I realized early on, like I remember thinking when I first started, I was like, you know what? I think I want to coach this when I'm done with the military. You know, in my mind, I was going to go be a special, go be an operator. I was going to go re-enlist once, try to get bought out for a con- and go do contracting work and make a lot more money that way. That was what I, I thought my path was. So, but I thought like, oh yeah. And then when I'm not doing contracting work, I can coach and I can, you know, I can do this because I really, I think I'd enjoy this. I've always liked the idea of coaching and teaching. I'm the second oldest of 12 kids. I've always... I've always kind of been an instructional teaching kind of role by, by life circumstance. And, um, I just didn't think it was going to happen so soon. Um, I was only in for two and a half years because of the injury and the uh, medical discharge. And so, um, I got into just coaching a lot of different things and different people with different goals. Um, then I started kind of branching off into like with my own stuff, I had to like dive into more and more methods more and more concepts. And so that started to really round out, like started to fill up a toolbox worth of like things that I had to help people with. Um, fast forward to my amputation, I got into physical therapy and I realized this isn't it. This is not how, this is not excited as I knew I've been teaching people how to move and how to learn and develop their movement for a while. I was like, this isn't how movement development works. So I started working on it. So I kind of did my own physical therapy in a sense. Um, not in like an arrogant way. Um, but like, I just started working my own. I was like, you know what? I've got this opportunity to test out everything I've ever tried, ever thought. I'm literally getting to start from zero with 10 years of experience. Let's go. And so I took the challenge on like that. 
I taught myself to walk using a, using a trap bar deadlift because it taught me how to drive into my, it taught me what it felt like to actually load my prosthetic. It got my hamstrings warmed up. I would do a set of five really light and then I'd go do, I'd go walk, I'd go walk a lap. And I started to realize in that first session that every set of deadlifts, my walking got better because I got better at figuring out how to engage my posterior chain. And so that's where the adaptive methods really were born was me teaching myself how to walk. Cause I was like, I want to do a lot more than walk, but I also know that everything will only be done as well as I can walk. So I hammered it, hammered it and just kept working. Kept, now I started pulling all these other methods that I was using and think concepts that I was using with, with, I had CRPS and I was losing proprioception then, which is what a big part of the amputation is. I've lost so much proprioception. And so I kept going. And so like at this point now I've been coaching for over a decade. I've got my, I've got a lot of my ideas that need to work. And so Schaefer adaptive methods, well, part of it was my buddy sent it to me. It's a, it's an acronym, not an acronym. It's SAM, Schaefer adaptive methods. My name is Sam. And he's like, dude, you have to call this Schaefer adaptive methods. And he's like, also, if you could think of a name as cool for me as I just did for you, that would be great. He's like, cause I'm so good at figuring out other people's names and he really is. <laughs> he just, um, and so. There was a little bit of that. So the name just kind of was floating out there. And I just kind of used that as a name whenever I would, um, put something out there. And so I've spent most of my career working with general gym pop athletes, um, able-bodied primarily, um, because that's who usually goes into a gym. And I realized that I, a, I've got a very strong passion for the general population. Um, most coaches are very like, they want to coach that freak. They want to coach an NFL player. They want to coach a D one athlete. And that's a ton of fun. I I've done, I've, I've gotten to do that as well. And we've had great success. I hope that I always get the opportunity to work with the general population. I want somebody, I get really intrigued by my buddy who just had his first kid a year ago and wants to figure out how to keep training. I want to solve that puzzle, you know? So, so I'm really into that and, you know. And now I've got like three or four newer dads that I coach, that I do programming for and training that I build programs to meet their schedule. Like one of them needs, like he needs, basically he does three days worth of programming and I, and I fit it and I stretch it out over five days so he can be time efficient or cause that's how long, that's how long the baby will sit out there and let him train, you know? And so these sorts of things. So I, I like solving those sorts of puzzles, but I work with a lot of those people. Um, I work with, a, I've, I've gotten to increase my, uh, my roster of amputees. That's been awesome. Um, so I, I work with more amputees now. Um, I work with an organization called less like more heart. And for a lot of my amputees, less like more heart actually pays for their training. So if you are by any chance an amputee listening to this, or, you know, one, and they would like, you would like, they would like to get some personal training, uh, covered by somebody who's been doing this for a long time and totally understands their perspective, reach out to less like more heart. Um, so like, um, that's been an incredible gift that I've gotten. Um, that's where the, the intro to writing ebook, that confidence was built out of my experience with less, like more heart. We, re they put me in a position that I didn't know I was going to get put in. I got put on the spot and we learned like 20 minutes later, like, oh shit, he can teach me. I, I can teach. I can, I had like a, a 30 amputees running well, who had never been on a blade before. And I was able to teach them how. And what in the feel and the sensation, again, that experience you get, you know, amputees don't want to run because they don't want to limp around, but they want that feel. And so I started translating that. And then, so now I am, you know, so I, I work with everyone really, 
honestly, I'll work with anybody who wants to work. Um, I am have a strong passion for a general population, a strong passion for the adaptive community. Um, I've even done a couple, worked with a couple gyms now to do like, to start educating their coaching staff on how to coach adaptive athletes. Like what are the processes and all that sort of stuff. Um, I've begun a little bit of work with the adaptive training academy, um, to help to work on their curriculum and, um, that. So while I definitely have a specialty that's unique with the, uh, with the adaptive community, um, I do work with a lot of gen pop as well. And do you do virtual and in person? Yep. Yep. In fact, I just finished an in-person. I'm in a client's basement right now. Um, what, what a wild time to live in, right? I am in a client's basement after uh, going to his house this morning to do a session at 6.30 in the morning. So I could hop on this podcast at 7.30. And um, so, yeah, so I do a lot of in-person, but I also do, yeah, I do a lot of Zoom. All my, almost all my amputee work has been through Zoom because that's how I've been able to connect to these um, these people. There's a couple couple uh, in the couple individuals in the area that I've gotten to do in-person work with and go figure works like work like gangbusters because we can get the, the feedback is that much better um but we have had i've been really really impressed with the progress we've been able to make on the virtual front wonderful so sam how can an audience member get in touch with you the best way is instagram uh, my, my instagram is probably that's the one that i understand uh, i'm trying to understand other social medias i I want to understand the TikTok thing, not really because I want to be on TikTok, but because I was given a very compelling argument um, by Kelly Sturette on why I should be on TikTok. But that'll be for another time. But yeah, so Instagram at Sam Schaefer one, S-A-M-S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R, the number one. I know there's like 97 ways to spell Schaefer and they all make perfect sense. So um, easy to say. But you got to be specific with the spelling. And I, I do also have a YouTube channel, um, uh, just Sam Schaefer on YouTube. And I am currently detailing my uh, my training, my prep. So I just started running um, not that long ago um, for the first time in 12 years. And before I had even done a four-mile run, I was signed up for the Bryce Canyon 30K trail run in May. I was like, you know what? We're going for it. Um, that is an experience I want to have. I know what I need to do and I know I've got plenty of time to figure to, to be prepared for it. So, um, so I'm doing a little bit of a vlog series right now, um, detailing my learning process. So if that's interesting to you at all, I would love for you to check that out as well. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, but yeah, th- those are the two, those are the two best ones to go find me and, um, to me, shoot me a DM. I'd love to help. We'll include those, like in case you can't spell Schaefer or you spell it the different way, we'll include <laughs> those links in the show notes. So just scroll down. Um, Sam, I love this conversation. I, you've got me fired up for the day for sure. We started oh, off talking you. about how some days are great, some days are bad, some days are in the middle. But as you just keep on moving, that creates the positive movement forward. And I love your perspective of like, you know, voting for your best self. We talked about, does this make sense? Does this make me my best? And your perception around you're not in pain, you're just experiencing pain. That was a game changer for me. Um, That's awesome. Audi- Thank you. Audi- you're welcome. Audience members, if you got value out of our show today, please subscribe. Please like the episode. Please check out Sam and his websites, his Instagram page. Share this amongst your community because we really need this message, this positive energy message to be spread out throughout our community. Sam. I feel like I just started a lifelong friendship with you. Thank you. Again I hope so, for being man. On our shoot. No, th- thanks for having me. Um, 
I, the wildest things happen from these things. So I am eternally grateful for sure. And my, my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. To hear more inspiring stories and strategies around the endurance mindset, be sure to subscribe below or visit us at chiefenduranceofficer.com. Until next time, keep pushing those limits.